How's everyone doing? Yeah, good. Some people. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, awesome. My name is Marco, preaching uh, and teaching pastor here at Storehouse. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us for our Ash Wednesday service. Um, this is the second time we do this. Last year we went bare bones, and, and this year we're kind of doing uh, some things a little different, but at the same time going uh, bare bones nonetheless. If you have a Bible uh, with you, go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. That's where uh, we're going to be uh, parked in tonight for the, for the majority of our time. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the rows or in the back. Someone will grab one for you. Um, and man, that is also our gift to you if you want to bless anyone with one. So go ahead and, and take that. While you guys uh, turn to Psalm 51, whether it's you're, you're opening your Bible or you're loading your Bible, uh, tonight, man, I just want to be, I, I just want to be really clear. I want to uh, talk about a bunch of things tonight, but but predominantly, tonight we're going to look at everybody's favorite topic, and, and that is sin and confession and repentance. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to talk about the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to talk about all of that. That's actually where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But it being Ash Wednesday or it being the start of the Lent season, I thought I'd kind of walk through what is Lent, maybe teach a little bit on it, what what it, what it consists of, what it doesn't consist of, where does it come from, all of those wonderful things. And so while you're turning there, I'll, I'll briefly cover a little bit of historical excur- uh, excursions as, as we, we dive in. So, uh, man, I want to be clear. We are not going Roman Catholic. We are not uh, Lutherans. We're, we're, we're not any of those things. The, the idea of, uh, of Ash Wednesday, the, the idea of the ash on the forehead is really a, a, a declaration, a sign of, of public repentance. Uh, the, the, the ash on your, on your forehead or when people receive the ash on your forehead, it's not necessarily necessary. It's not required. What is required of us, in particular, if you belong to Jesus, what is required of us is repentance. Uh, the, the big idea for tonight, as we look at Psalm 51, the big idea that I want you, if you, you walk away with anything tonight, I want you to walk away with this, that, that joy in Christ is found in and begins with repentance. So don't, uh, I'm, I'm, we're not doing Lent, or we're not doing Ash Wednesday to place our faith in that. We're actually just using this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. When it comes to the ash on the forehead, it's really not just symbolic, but an evangelistic opportunity. In other words, should you decide to get it, and someone asks, why do you have the ash on your forehead? You shouldn't answer with, well, I decided to give up chocolate for the next 40 days. That's why I have this ash on my forehead. It's not, oh, the reason I have this ash on my forehead is because I'm going off of social media for the next 40 days. The idea is, man, having an ash, uh, the ash on, on your forehead, if someone asks, man, why do you have that? Man, let me tell you uh, about my great Savior, Jesus Christ, and how much of a great sinner I am. It's really an opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel. That's, that's really what it, what it comes down to. This idea of Lent actually comes out of uh, the church calendar. Now, now, some churches, when it comes to the church calendar, some churches will 
orient their culture, their sermon series to the church calendar. Some of you may not know about the church calendar. It's a calendar that's been in existence for several thousands of years, and oftentimes we don't necessarily think about something formal, but we do walk through some of those seasons that tend to be Christian. And so when we look at Easter, nobody says anything about Easter. It's really the resurrection. The idea of the church calendar is that there are seasons that the church is going to spend intentional time focusing in on a particular uh, portion of the life of Christ while on earth. So, for example, Resurrection Sunday or the season of Easter, we are building up and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, that he conquered sin, Satan, and the grave. Nobody says anything about Easter, right? Some churches observe Advent. We try to. We've always tried to, and we always just miss it. But nevertheless, when it comes to to Advent, what does Advent like focus on? Advent focuses on the coming of Jesus, and then that's kind of it, right? You might, uh, if anybody have ever heard of Epiphany, like, whoa, or Pentecost, right? Those are all seasons of the life of Christ that the church tends to focus on at times and orients their sermon series or the culture of the church to that. Lent is one of those seasons. The idea of Lent is that it focuses on the life of Jesus uh, while he's fasting in the wilderness, So, with that being said, what tends to happen during Lent? Well, people tend to give stuff up, right? Uh, I'm going off of social media. I'm I'm not going to eat chocolate. Uh, I'm going to start working out for the next 40 days. I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know what people do, whatever. You know, the, the, the idea behind it isn't so that you would get healthy. The idea behind it isn't so that you would just come off of social media. The idea behind it is that you would focus on something that's keeping you from having communion with God. The idea is that you yourself would experience intentional communion with Christ. It's a time, Lent that is, it's a time where we reflect on, uh, on, 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 on our sin, where we take ownership of our sin, where we repent, confess and repent of our sin. It's not this time that serves a dietary purpose. It's not a time that uh, is about, uh, okay, now I'm going to get clean, right? I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Fat Tuesday, Right? Fat Tuesday is where, man, people will go all out the day before Ash Wednesday today. They will go all out, eat all the things, do all of the things, good or bad. There are no rules. They go out and do that so that when Wednesday comes, okay, now I'm going to be clean. But you completely miss it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But you completely miss it if that's what you're looking for. Additionally, Lent is not a time of penance. Man, I have just been so bad that, man, I need to do good things in order to be right with God. It's not a time of penance. The idea of penance is that there's punishment required. Jesus has already taken that punishment on the cross. There's, there's nothing for you to do but to turn from your sin and place your hope in him. And so for us, we hold Lent, we hold Ash Wednesday with a loose hand, with an open hand. 
For us, it serves two opportunities. Number one, or two things. Number one is an opportunity to root ourselves in the good news that God saves sinners. It's an opportunity to reflect and examine our hearts, confess and repent of our sin, and turn to Jesus. That's one reason we we kind of follow through with Lent. The next one is that this is a catalyst, that we're going to spend intentional time in this season to establish a regular rhythm in our life, and that is fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is biblical. The idea behind this is that we're just using this as a catalyst to teach about fasting. This isn't the only time the Christian ought to fast. That's not what it's intended for, but we're using it for an opportunistic uh, catalyst, I guess. And so like Sunday, my desire is that this season would challenge you in your theology that we would be rooted in some historical traditions, but that these would be coming from biblical references. The idea of the ash actually comes from Genesis 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The idea of the Lenten season isn't just an intentional focusing in on our relationship with God, it's also realizing, man, we are but a breath. Man, everything's gonna go quickly. And so we're using this time, uh, this season, and if there are things that we need to change, if there are things that we need to adjust, if there are things that we need to repent of, if there are things that we need to change so that we can establish regular rhythms uh, in our communion with God, we're using this as an opportunity to do so. So, that's kind of a, a little overview of why and what Lent is. We're going to be in Psalm 51. We're looking at all 19 verses, though we may not park at each one. And so what I'll do is I'll read Psalm 51, and then I'll pray, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into our time. So, so here's Psalm 51. This is King David, uh, beginning in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inner, inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart." Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. God, as we come together to dive into your word, uh, here's, here's just a couple of things that I would have, Lord. One, that this time would bring you glory, that, that our faith wouldn't be rooted in the tradition of a season, but that our faith would be rooted in the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that I would be cast aside and that it would be you, Holy Spirit, that speaks and works through me, that the words that land on my brothers and sisters, that you, Holy Spirit, would take them from their ears into their hearts. God, I pray that throughout, not just tonight and this season, but as we move forward as a church, as a family, as a church family, uh, that we would, again, be grounded in your gospel, that we would take sin seriously like you do. So in this time, God, would you search our hearts so that, may, so that we would repent uh, genuinely and authentically, so that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus God, we thank you for this time of worship, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Cool. Here we go. So this week, I've, uh, and I know it's only Wednesday, but this week I've, I've had a couple of meetings, and, uh, and, and, and I think about two meetings in particular. I was with a couple of individuals, and uh, these individuals, um, essentially, they, they, they confessed and, and repented of, of their sin. They were, they were just broken over their sin. They confessed their sin. I saw their hearts break. I saw them repent of their sin, turning away and, and looking to Jesus for, for hope. I saw them confronted with their sin, um, and again, I saw them comforted by the, by the grace of, of God's forgiveness. My heart broke with them at the same time that all of this is happening, and, uh, but at the same time, I was proud of them, right? They were, they were confessing sin. They were putting it all on the table. This is what's going on. This is what I've done. This is where my heart's at. I was just so proud of these people, these guys. Yet as I processed our time over the next day and a half, I reflected upon repentance. And I reflected upon repentance in my own life. Like, do I value repentance? Not just as a, as a pastor. And here's the thing, real quick, I want to preface, like, I'm just, I, I want to be super simple and practical tonight. But at the same time, I also want to be transparent. And so, and so when it comes to repentance, I was thinking about it like, man, do I even value that? Like, is that a value in our home? And so I just started kind of thinking on that. And then I started thinking about the value of repentance for us as a church. Man, is that something that we value? And as I just continued to kind of reflect on that and sit on that, I kind of concluded a couple of things. I concluded that in that time, and, and most times, we view repentance, or actually we reduce repentance to a special event. We reduce repentance to a special occasion for the big sins. That's where we reduce repentance to. And instead of actually looking at it as something that is serious, that brings us back into the grace of God's forgiveness, we actually don't value it as much. It's not necessarily a daily part of our walk and our, our worship of the Lord. 
And so as a result, that concerns me. It concerns me because if we have reduced repentance to a special occasion, then that implies a couple of things. This might be you, I don't, I don't know. But this is ultimately where my head was headed over this past day and a half. This may imply one of three things. Number one, the reason we've reduced repentance to uh, a special occasion or the reason we don't see a value in repentance is because number one, we just don't take sin seriously. It's kind of it. We don't take sin seriously. We're not serious about our sin as God is because we just don't experience the immediate effects. We're kind of like that frog in boiling water, right? That's just kind of like hanging out and the water's just getting hotter and hotter and not really feeling those effects uh, or like immediately happening. That's, that's kind of how I feel about how we view repentance or how we view our sin, that when we sin, when we actually rebel against God, it's like, okay, my bad. I'll just, I'll just change that. But it's not, we don't take it seriously. I don't know, I don't know how, how, how else to unpack that. We just don't take sin seriously. And perhaps we don't take it seriously because we don't experience the immediate effects. The second thing is... Part of the reason we may not necessarily, and I'm including myself in all of this, but part of the reason we may not necessarily value repentance is because repentance interferes with our happiness in the sense that, man, if I have to repent, that means I have to actually take uh, God and his word seriously. And it's interfering with what I want to do. And we begin to justify sin We begin to justify sin by uh, saying things like, well, you know, God has forgiven me and I'm covered by grace, therefore I can do some of the things that I've been doing. We start to stray maybe a degree, then two degrees, then three degrees, and all the while as we're straying, as we're rebelling from God, we're justifying our sin all the way. And we'll even try to be theological about it. We'll say things like, well, you know, I've been freed from sin because of the blood of Christ." And I think we, we, we uh, you know, kind of twist Scripture in that sense where it's like you understand that you have been freed from judgment, not obedience. What's that? Remember, I'm just going to be transparent. This is, like, this is a whiteboard session for me with y'all tonight. The third one is, So we don't value repentance. Maybe it's not because we don't take sin seriously. Maybe it's not because uh, uh, it's interfering with our happiness. But maybe we don't take uh, repentance seriously because we just think we're doing okay. We're good. I was listening to a politician last week, and they were asking him about repentance and forgiveness. And he was just very honest, which I guess I appreciated, but he was very honest, and he said, I just don't see the need for repentance and forgiveness. Like, if, I, if I'm not necessarily doing anything wrong, why, why would I even ask for that? And to an extent, I guess you can make a case for that, but the idea behind that is, like, why value it? Why value repentance? Why value repentance if, if you and I think we're just doing okay? In that sense, then we become religious and we become legalistic. That is that the gospel has now been reduced to our moral performance. That we're actually trying to impress God rather than abide in God. 
And so what I want to do tonight is, is put everything on the table. I want to put everything on the table. I want to be totally, man, I want to be totally blunt. I want to be direct. But at the same time, I want to be gracious. I want to be practical tonight. And so I want to begin by answering a series of questions because that's just what I do. This, remember, this is, this is a whiteboard session for me, so we're going to go through a lot of these questions. And I'll give you the questions, and then I'll come back, and, and we'll start with the first one. First thing that I want to answer is, well, what is sin? I want us to have a, a basic biblical understanding of what sin is. The second question that we're going to walk into is, well, what does sin do? The third one is, as a result of that, well, what are we supposed to do? That's when we're going to talk about confession and repentance and, and spend a little bit of time on, on repentance, which leads into the last question. And the last question is, well, how do I repent? All right? How do I repent? So let's go back up to the first one. So what is sin? And so the Bible teaches that, that sin is rebellion against God, whether you consider your sin small, or you consider your sin big, or even medium, whatever size you'd like to put it, the Bible teaches that all sin is rebellion against God, against the holy and righteous God, that sin is both active and passive. You may have heard the sin of commission or the sin of omission, that the things that we should do, or excuse me, that the the things we shouldn't do, we do, and the things that we ought to do, we don't do. The sin of commission, the sin of omission. God takes sin so seriously that apart from him and his grace, we actually all stand condemned. But in his mercy, in his love and kindness, God sends his son to die on a cross for sinners. But check it. He sends his son to die on a cross for sinners, paying our debt. That rebellion, that transgression, that now I'm indebted to God. And rather than wiping me out, he sends his son to die on a cross for sinners like you and me to pay our debt in full and satisfies the wrath of God that was over us. It's twofold. The Bible calls that grace undeserving favor from God towards sinners. And I think when we reduce repentance, when we reduce the significance of the gospel, we cheapen that grace because we don't take sin seriously. We just don't take it seriously. So, so let's look at what sin does. So if that's what sin is, well, what are the causes of sin? What when we sin, what, what, what's ultimately happening? And this is when we're going to look at, at, uh, at Psalm 51. And so I'll tell you three things that sin does. Same thing, I'll give you the list and then I'll go back up. The first thing is that sin disrupts our relationship with God. Number two, sin corrupts us. And then number three, sin steals our joy. We're going to pull all of this from Psalm 51, we're going to look at several verses from Psalm 51. Some of them are going to be repetitive, but nevertheless, I'm sure you'll, you'll get the clue or the point. So number one, it disrupts our relationship with God. Go to, the, the, to verses three and four. Listen, listen to King David. Now, now, Psalm 51 is King David's confession to the Lord as after he's committed adultery and, and murdered his friend. 
Okay, so some, some big things have happened here, and he's convicted, and he is confessing this before the Lord. So, so look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David sinned against God before he sinned against anyone else. Sin inevitably not only disrupts uh, our relationship with God, it also has consequences uh, with one another. But before we even talk about those consequences, what David is saying in this psalm and in that verse, what he is saying is, man, I have sinned against God before I sinned against anyone else. That sin disrupted my communion with God. That there has been separation because of my sin. That's the first thing I want you to know. That's the first thing I want you to chew on and think about. Like your sin, our sin, isn't just a my bad. Our sin separates us. It disrupts our relationship with God. That's how serious it is, regardless of how you view it, big, small, wide, whatever, That sin disrupts our relationship with God. And so in verses 3 and 4, David is broken not just because he's broken God's laws, but because he's broken God's heart. And he's laying it all on the table. As a result, sin corrupts us. Look at verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, David realizes that his sin has corrupted him. See, it goes deeper than his behavior. David isn't addressing his hands. David is addressing the condition of his heart. David says, I need a new heart. I need my spirit to be renewed. It's not just my behavior. This is something that is in me. This is something that is coming from within me. Elsewhere, I think it's Matthew 11, uh, no, whatever, Matthew 11, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says it's actually not what's external that defiles you, it's actually what's internal that defiles you. It's, It's your heart that defiles you. And David here is putting it on the table. He he is saying that he is corrupted because it's not just his behavior that needs to be addressed. That's what I would submit to you. Some of you think when we're looking at sin, like, man, I just need to change a few things. And maybe, maybe you do need to change a couple of things, but, but that's not the priority. The priority is that, man, our hearts need to be cleaned, that our spirits need to be renewed. The third thing is that it steals our joy. Look at verse 8 and then verse 12. Verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, David has no peace. He has no peace. His joy in the Lord is absent because of his sin. That's why he's begging him, restore me to the joy of your salvation. My bones have been broken. Restore that joy. I think one of the things that conviction does, that the Holy Spirit does through conviction, is that he doesn't necessarily allow us to enjoy one another or life because there's something that's just pulling us. That's what David is talking about. 
That's that joy that's been robbed, but it's been robbed because of sin. And so those are three things. What does sin do? It disrupts our relationship with God, it corrupts us, and it steals our joy. We're going to be kind of short tonight. Again, I want to be really practical. So let's answer the next one. Well, so if that's what sin does, then, then what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, sure, we should confess and, and repent, and so let's get a little geeky and, and let's get a little practical. Well, let's look at what confession is. Same thing, we're pulling from Psalm 51. I think sometimes, just like repentance, confession is just, uh, man, we say it, it's on the table, good, we're good, we're good. I've said it, I don't, I don't necessarily need to take any kind of ownership now. It's, it's on the table, it's in the air, uh, my words flowed with feelings of positivity, and I'm good. So let's look at what confession is. Confession actually, and again, you may not necessarily think of it this way, like when you're in a time of prayer and you're like going to be confessing and repenting, you're not thinking, well, these are the steps. This is just, we're slowing it down tonight. And so the first thing is that that confession requires agreement with the charges that have been brought before you. That's the first thing in confession, that you are actually agreeing with the sin that is in front of you. Like you're owning it. You're owning that sin. And then you recognize that you have sinned against God first, right? Going back up to, to verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does that mean we haven't sinned against one another? No, we've sinned against one another. And stuff needs to happen there. But the significance of this is, this is how serious sin is. It's not just affecting your friendship. It's not just affecting uh, the nights that we hang out. It's, just not, it's not just affecting the surface. There's something beneath this, and there's something that takes priority, and that's our relationship with God. So, so confession requires agreement with the charges that have been brought before us. And see, once those charges have been brought before us, uh, the next thing that, that, that confession requires is for us to see just exactly how unworthy we are. Because in confession, or as we're confessing, we can't compare ourselves to anyone else. If you're taking ownership for that sin, you're not comparing yourself to anyone else. You're not saying, well, at least I'm not like him, and at least I'm not like her. The only one that you can compare yourself to is Jesus. That's the only one that you compare yourself to. And when you compare yourself to Jesus, you ought to quickly realize how undeserving you are of God's mercy. Go to verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So, so David is begging God. He's begging God in verse 11, like, don't leave. Don't, don't leave me, please. He is recognizing not just the sin that he has committed, but man, how much in need of God's mercy he is. The third thing is, as a result of confession, man, we ought to, we ought to hate our sin. Man, if we're pleading before a holy God, then our love for him should increase, while at the same time our hatred for sin does too. And finally, the fourth one in that is we realize that, that grace is actually our only hope. In confession, we realize that grace, that God's grace, that undeserving favor, God's grace is literally our only hope. So that's what confession is. So what's repentance then? Well, by definition, 
Repentance is turning away. It literally means to turn around, to turn a new direction. We turn away from our sin and we place our hope in Jesus. That's just, that's the definition of what repentance is. But repentance obviously is so much more. Repentance is a response to God's grace. Think about confession. That last thing is when we realize, excuse me, we realize that grace is our only hope. As a result of that, repentance is a response to God's grace. Repentance is believing the truth of the gospel. It's believing the truth of the gospel, not the lies that we think are going to satisfy us. Repentance is us saying that we are a great sinner in need of a great God. Repentance is initial and it's ongoing. In other words, it's at that moment and for the rest of your life. As God's called us to repent, he's called us to it for a lifetime. Repentance is dying to yourself. It's fighting against those things that you think are going to satisfy you. That's kind of the basic gist of it. That's what repentance is. So, let's keep getting more practical. So then how do I repent? Right? How do I repent? So we've answered what is sin? What does sin do? What's confession? What's repentance? Well, how do I repent? This is the practical part. The first thing is that we address God. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first thing that David does is that he addresses God. He addresses who God is. He addresses what God does. He addresses the person and work of God, the character of God. He's bringing God into his mess, and God is meeting him where he's at. He's addressing God. Addressing God means that when we pray, we lament. We lament because we recognize how serious our sin is. Some of us, some of you, in prayer, rather than lament, you complain. You complain. You complain about, if only they had done this, if only this had been a different situation, if only this had gone differently, if only I were in a different circumstance. You know what, God, what I actually deserve that you're not giving me in this moment, at this time, on my own terms, is X, Y, and Z. If you would really like something that you deserve, it's the fruit of our sin. That's what we deserve. Complaining is a lack of intimacy with God. Complaining is an affront to his mercy and his patience. See, in prayer, we're, we're addressing God. We're, he's meeting us where we're at. There is lament over our sin. Because if we're taking sin seriously, we're recognizing what we have just done, not just toward one another, but in particular toward God. So that's one, that we address God. And I think, I think there's, there's going to be four things. I think when it comes to number one, many, many would even agree, like, yes, we need to address God. We need to lament in prayer totally get it. It's these next three that we stink at. The next one is to be honest. To be honest and straight up. 
Look at verses three and four again. All right, he says, for I know my transgressions. Some translations say I am conscious of my sin. In other words, he knows what he's done. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. Honesty requires transparency and vulnerability. Honesty means that you're facing reality. That you're facing the reality that's in front of you. Some of you don't like to face reality. Some of you like to avoid it, right? Some of you like to avoid reality by by putting things under the rug. Some of you actually indulge in your bitterness. Some of you actually want to grow deceptively, and you may not necessarily articulate it that way, but that's exactly what happens when you avoid what's in front of you, when you avoid the sin that you've committed, You might say, well, I don't necessarily avoid the reality. Well, maybe not, but if you don't avoid it, then some of you escape it. Some of you try to escape it. You you go to something else that will, in hopes, satisfy you. I mean, you go to your job. You increase your workload. You go to a relationship. You go to pornography. You go to money. You go to power. Man, you could even turn to your bitterness and grow that. Some of you avoid reality. Some of you escape reality. And when it comes to repentance, we actually need to be honest. That if if joy is found first in repentance, then, then we need to be straight up with what's in front of us. And if that's not hard enough, or if we don't make that hard enough, we sure make the next one harder. Because the next one is taking responsibility taking responsibility. See, taking responsibility means humility, and it means brokenness. Listen to David in verse 16. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Man, some of you sometimes taking responsibility is like, just tell me what I need to do to fix it. Just tell me what I need to do to fix it, and we'll change it up, and it'll be done. And he's saying right here, in terms of, in terms of his, his relationship with God, he's like, you, you actually don't delight in sacrifice. And then he goes on in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you won't despise. Some translations say a broken spirit and a humbled heart. That's what taking responsibility requires. Owning sin sets the course for restoration. I'll say that one more time. Owning sin sets the course for restoration. So what do we do instead of taking ownership or taking responsibility? Because here's the thing. Taking responsibility means that action needs to happen. This is where, yes, things do need to change or things need to happen or things need to be adjusted of. Sure, But what do we tend to do? We actually tend to justify our sin rather than taking responsibility. Some of you get defensive. Man, someone brings some stuff up to your attention and you get defensive. That's, I'm not gonna lie, that's that's me. Because I think fast, I talk fast, and I'll make you believe that what I did was right. You get defensive, right? Some of you blame others. 
Some of you blame others. And here's the thing, even when it comes to being defensive, like what I just said about myself, even when it comes to blame others, man, you'll sprinkle that with scripture. You'll sprinkle that with some Christianese. All just to justify it. And so you blame others. Well, if so-and-so hadn't done those things, and if you think about it, follow me here for a second, I wouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. So you blame others. Some of you compare yourself. Well, yes, I did do that, but at least I'm not as bad as the adulterer. At least I'm not as bad as, as, as the one who's addicted to, to pornography. At least I'm not that bad. Right? And so you're just like the Pharisee. Right? There's that parable where Jesus says two men walk into the temple. There's one dude who's a tax collector and the other one's a Pharisee. And the Pharisee's like, God, I do this right. I do this right. I do this right. Thank you for not letting me be like this dude. And this dude can't even pick up his head. And he says, man, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Some of you, man, compare. Some of you hide your sin. Man, you'll sprinkle that with Christianese too. I mean, it's not really a sin. Look, think about it. Follow me for a second, and you'll justify it. Some of you, when you're called out, I guess, or when things are brought to your attention, you demonstrate worldly sorrow. This is what Paul called. Paul calls this worldly sorrow and not godly grief. Paul says that that godly grief leads us to repentance. That, That means that you're actually broken over this. Like everything that we've talked about, you've realized I've sinned against a holy and righteous God. Its effects have affected my relationship with him. It's affected my relationship with others. It has shown me the corruption of my heart. I have no peace. I need to repent. Some of you demonstrate worldly sorrow. Hey, my bad. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was good. Thanks for for bringing that up. I'll, I'll change that next week. Right? Worldly sorrow. One of my, one of my go-to Puritans, I, I love this dude, his name is Thomas Watson. Uh, I got two, two brief quotes from him. This is what he says regarding uh, sin and ownership. He says, in the first one he says, A man may be sorry, yet not repent. As a thief is sorry when he is taken. Not because he stole, but because he has to pay the penalty. The next thing he says is, a wicked man may be troubled for scandalous sins, but a real convert laments heart sins. That's a dude who takes sin seriously. That his heart is lamenting over the sin that he has committed. It does pour out into his relationships, but it first begins with the fact that he has sinned against God. So some of you will mask taking responsibility by justifying it, whatever your flavor is, right? But just know that by taking responsibility, by taking ownership of your sin, it sets the course for restoration. It sets the course for restoration. Here's number four. This is also a difficult one. This is the last one. We're almost done. So in terms of repentance, it's addressing God. It's being honest. It's taking responsibility. Number four is trusting God to restore you. Trusting God to restore you. Go to, go to seven and eight, verses seven and eight, excuse me. 
He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You could actually go up to verse 2 as well. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, all of this has everything to do between David and God, which is what we're addressing. This is between you and the Lord. And what David is doing in these couple of verses is that he's putting it on the table, and he is banking in God and in God alone to cleanse him. It is the cry of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And as David is just wailing and putting this on the table, he is not asking God to just help him wash his hands. He is asking God to wash him thoroughly. Everything, not just my hands, not just my mind, not just my eyes, my heart, my spirit, I'm putting it all out there. He's trusting in God to cleanse him. He's putting it all on the table. Joy in Christ begins with repentance. It begins with repentance. And so when we don't trust God, we're actually preaching something about Jesus. We're preaching that his grace is not sufficient to make us whole. We're preaching that his work on the cross was uh, incomplete. And so, so how do we do that? How is it that we preach those things? Maybe, maybe we're not even preaching them to other people. We're just believing them ourselves. One of those ways is, is that we make promises. Who has made promises? In the sense of, man, you sin, you're like, okay, I promise I'm never going to do that again. Don't lie, you're in church, right? Like, the, you make these promises of like, oh my gosh, that was big. I dropped the ball. Lord, you don't even repent. It's just like, Lord, I promise I'm not going to do that again. Right? I promise I'm not going to do that again. So you make promises, or, or you say like, okay, uh, saved by grace, repentance, I get a do-over. I get a do-over. I get to do this over again. That Repentance is not a do-over. Repentance is bringing us back into the grace of God's forgiveness. It's not that you were never a son or a daughter. It's not a not a do-over, especially when, when we talk with a couple of guys who, who uh, struggle with things like, like porn, and they'll, they'll, they'll go months without, uh, without, like, stumbling, and then they stumble at one point, and they'll say things like, man, I stumbled, I fell, okay, like, what do I need to do? They think they need to go back to the beginning. It's like, no, you don't, you don't go back to the beginning. You've actually had months of progress. Get up repent, address it, and let's keep moving forward. So stop making promises. One of the other things is, uh, man, when we, when we sin against God and, and maybe we're convicted or we feel bad or we feel guilty, one of the things that we do is that we make up for sin. We do a lot of really good things, right? I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to shower. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to do all of these things that are good. Or you beat yourself up. That's the other side of it. Maybe you don't do good things. Maybe you just beat yourself up over your sin, right? 
And so you think, man, this is just my penance. I just got to do enough good things or I just got to beat myself enough, beat, beat myself up enough in order to get back in a good standing with God. The idea behind that is that you're saying Jesus's work on the cross was incomplete. Let me tell you, it was not incomplete. Jesus paid the full penalty and punishment for your sin and satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. There's nothing to make up. There's nothing to make up. You you shouldn't beat yourself up. If it's not making promises, if it's not making up for sin, maybe we turn to moralism. Okay, I dropped the ball. I'm just not going to do bad things. I'm actually pretty good. I'm actually pretty good, so I'm going to do all of these good things. Let Let me tell you this. You can go to church all you want. You can lead all the Bible studies you want to lead. You can give all the money you want to give. You can put all the fishes you want on your, on your car and your heart be super distant from God. You can put your faith in doing all the Christian things And bank on that, and never once bank on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why repentance is a big deal. That's why sin is so serious. So so if it's not moralism, maybe some of you just settle. I keep screwing up. I keep screwing up, so I'm just going to quit. Repentance is really good news. It's really good news because repentance means that there's hope. Repentance means that there is hope. That that in repentance, God brings grace and mercy to where you're at. Like where you're at emotionally, spiritually, he brings grace and mercy to you. So again, if you walk away with anything tonight, walk away with this. Joy in Christ begins with, is founded in repentance. That's where it's founded. Joy in Christ begins with repentance. And so whether you observe Lent or not, or whether you get ashed on your forehead or not, whether you stop doing something for the next 40 days or not, whatever, man. That's not the point. The point is that we want to use this season as a time to dive deep in our communion with God. That's the point. That we actually reflect on the reality of our sin, that we reflect on the depth of our sin so that we would repent, so that we would worship God. We obey not so that God would approve of us, not so that God would love us, but because God has already loved us in Christ. Joy begins with repentance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this evening where we got to hang out together and uh, you know, uh, sing 
we got together and to sing and to, to hear your preached word. God, we thank you for this opportunity to, uh, man, to worship you, essentially. God, may we be a people who, who takes sin seriously. May we be a people who, who doesn't overlook repentance. May we be a humble people. Actually, may we be what, what David says, that, that our, 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 our hearts are humbled and our spirits are broken as we come before you in repentance. Not as something that we did five years ago, ten years ago, that we did a week ago, but that we would repent right now. God, in this time of worship, as, as we turn to um, man, the, the, the rest of our time, may this be an opportunity where we give you our sin. That we don't wait for tomorrow, we don't wait for tonight, we don't wait for after dinner, but we give you our sin right now. That as we walk into this season of Lent, as we walk into this season of Lent, that this is, this is a time where we reflect on our relationship with you. That if, that if we do give stuff up, whatever that is, we're giving it up because, one, it's keeping us from our relationship with you. Two, it's actually something that we find more satisfaction in. And so, God, we just confess that to you right now. And we submit that before you. Maybe for some of us, uh, uh, it isn't necessarily giving something up, but being a part of something. Maybe it's diving into community. If it's not diving into community, maybe, maybe it's confessing sin to one another tonight. And God, I, I pray against those that may just be thinking about like their hands. God, I pray that, that we would, my brothers and sisters, would be thinking right now about the condition of their heart that if there is bitterness, if there is an avoidance of reality, if there is an escape of reality, not only would they, com- they confess that before you, but if they need to have conversations that they would be had tonight, that repentance would take place tonight. God, we have been saved by grace purely because you are a God who saves. We have been saved by grace because Um, you have demonstrated mercy for us on our behalf through Christ. And so church, keep your your heads bowed. I'll tell you a little bit of how it's going to work right now. I'll continue to pray. I'm going to read back from, from Genesis 3. If you want to receive an ash on your forehead, you can come forward. This isn't required. This is not necessary. What is necessary is repentance. So if the ash isn't your thing, that's cool. This isn't all this is. This is a public proclamation of repentance. If you don't want to do it, cool. Don't do it. Let me keep praying, and then we'll go into that time. This is what Genesis three nineteen says. 
by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God, reading Genesis 3.19, I think about, man, the creation of man, where you were so incredibly intentional in your creation of man and woman. You slowed everything down. You thought through it. You breathed life into us. And as a demonstration of your love, as a demonstration of your kindness, as a demonstration of a loving father, when we hear that, that man, we came out from dust and to dust we're going to return, God, I pray that we would just reflect on, on our life. That we would reflect on our life that, man, this is but a single, like our life is just a mist. It's a breath. May we live this life to your glory. May we live this life to expand your kingdom, to further your gospel. And may we live this life in communion with you.